Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak into our hearts and our lives, that it be your voice heard, your words received, and Father, that you use me as a vessel uh, for you and for your glory, for your honor, that nothing in me be involved except that which you have ordained, and that you move in a mighty and powerful way in our hearts and our lives today, that we leave here changed, different from the way we came in. B'Shem Yeshua Meshecheinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says... Amen. This week we are in Parsha Balak from uh, Numbers 22-2 through 25, verse 9. Um, It is a very interesting Parsha, and if you have the time and the energy to dig into the depths of what is contained within these couple of chapters, there is so much to find and so much to to realize what the Lord is doing and what he's trying to do um, in this passage and through this particular situation. And also what it tells us about Israel and, uh, and in all honesty and all reality about ourselves as well as we look back to Israel as our example of what to and what not to do uh, as followers of Messiah Yeshua. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 22 beginning with verse 2. It says, When Balak, son of Zippor, realized all that B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, had done to the Amorites, Moab became terrified because there were so many people. Moab was filled with dread because of Bnei Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, the multitudes will lick up everything around us like the ox licks up the grass of the field. Now Balak, son of Zippor, was king of Moab at that time. He sent messengers to summon Bilam, son of Beor, at Pethor near the river in his native land, saying to him, look now, a people has come out of Egypt. See, now they cover the surface of the earth and are settling beside me. Come now, curse this people for me because they are too strong for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them away from the country. I know that whoever you bless will be blessed and whoever you curse will be cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian left with divination fees in their hands. When they, uh, when they came to Balaam, they told him Balak's words. Um, just to set up a couple of things for us uh, as we move into this. First and foremost, uh, as we read in Joshua uh, with the two spies that Joshua sends into the promised land, they interact uh, at Jericho and find out that the entire uh, peoples, all of the peoples of the land of Canaan were scared to death of what Israel was going to do to them, of what the Lord was going to do through Israel to them, uh, and of the promises of the Lord spoken to Israel that would be fulfilled when they enter the promised land. Now, what's interesting is they've been scared to death of Israel since Israel came out of Egypt. So for 40 years at this point, for 40 years, those of the peoples and the, the various nations and tribes of the land of Canaan had been terrified of what God was going to do through the people of Israel. Yet, when Israel had the opportunity to cross the Jordan, they didn't have the faith enough to actually take part. So, again, and, and I'm saying this, I say it a couple of times a year, I'm saying this now because it feeds right into the concept of what we're seeing here. The reality is, in this situation, what we see in Joshua is that the nations trusted more in the promises of God than the people of God 
trusted in the promises of God. So those who were not of God trusted more in his word than he than the, those who are. And so here we see Moab and Midian were scared to death of what God was going to do through Israel here in this portion in the book of Numbers chapter 22. They were scared to death of Israel because Israel was numerous and mighty and powerful and they had just in a miraculously miraculous way wiped out the armies of Sihon and Og. Uh, and because they wiped them out, Moab and Midian became scared to death and they were afraid of what was about to happen to them because they stood between Israel and the promises of God being fulfilled. Now, I want you to understand just in these first couple of verses, we see a lot of biblical history revealed and we see a lot of things, a lot of pieces of this picture and puzzle come together. A lot of times as believers, we don't look into the weight and the depth of the history of these people that we're talking about as we move through. And we look at Midian and Moab and Amorites and so on and so forth as just random groups of people who were living in the land of Canaan or on the east side of the Jordan that Israel would encounter. And we don't take into consideration where in the world do these people come from? Who are they? How do they connect to Israel, or are they connected to Israel? So I want to talk real quick. We, meant, we find four different uh, people groups and or individuals in this first couple of verses, first seven verses or so of Numbers 22. First off are the Moabites. And the Moabites uh, are where we get Balak. Balak is the king of the Moabites. The Moabites are the descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. Right? So Lot uh, leaves from uh, the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he runs and he gets plastered because he thought the world was over. Right? He gets completely plastered, and then his two daughters, thinking they're the last two people alive besides their father, sleep with their father and get impregnated and have children. And one of those daughters' children, or one of those daughters' sons, becomes the people of Moab, or the Moabites. Her son's name was Moab. So we have uh, here with the Moabites the direct descendants, the direct lineage descendants of the, uh, the, the son or the nephew, uh, uh, or son, the son of Lot through his daughter. Um, which is really weird sounding, but the son of Lot through his daughter, Lot being the nephew of Abraham. With Bilam, Bilam or Balaam as it's often uh, put in English Bibles. Bilam is the grandson of Laban. Anybody remember who Laban is? Right? Laban is the uh, brother of Rachel and uh, Rebecca, right? And so we have uh, Rachel and Leah, I'm sorry. So we have Laban, uh, who doesn't want to see them leave, doesn't want to see anything going down. We see all of this happening. He's trying to stop everything that the Lord is trying to do. Uh, but what we end up realizing is that Laban ends up being the grandfather of Bilam. Bilam becomes this high priest, prophet, whatever, of Baal Peor, and, uh, and now is a problem child for Israel. Now, in the first little bit of Parsha Belak, it doesn't look like he's such a bad guy. And then we realize as we move through and into next week's Parsha exactly how bad of a guy he really is. Uh, so Bilam is the grandson of Laban. Uh, and then the Am and remember, Laban is related to Sarah and Abraham, right? They're all related. It's really weird. We don't think about things in that sense today, but they're all related. They're all cousins or brothers and sisters or nephews that are coming uh, into these battles. Uh, the Amorites, which we discussed just a few moments ago that Israel had, uh, had uh, whipped the kings of, the Sihon and Og, the Amorites were the descendants of Noah's disgraced son, Ham. Remember, Ham is the one when Noah came off the boat, uh, he got drunk and he passed out. It seems like that's a theme, right? get drunk and their children disgrace them. Uh, but he gets drunk, he passes out naked, and Ham, his son, comes in and sees him and makes a big joke about it. And his other two sons, Shem and uh, uh, Japheth, come in and cover him up with their eyes turned away and protect his, his honor and, uh, and so on. But then Ham is cursed because of the actions of, his, uh, of what he has done uh, in disgracing his father. Well, here we have the Amorites or the Amori in Hebrew, the Amorites, 
are the descendants of, of Ham. Uh, and then we have the Midianites. The Midianites and, uh, are, and by the way, Shem is where we get the, uh, the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people from. The Midianites are descendants of Abraham through Qatar, which is his wife that he took after Sarah died. Um, and if you pay attention, we actually talked about this in our Bible study in Judges, that uh, the, in Judges chapter 6, it talks about how uh, the kings, uh, there were two kings and the people of the east that came and attacked Israel in the book of Judges chapter 6. And what we realize is, is that each of them are all related to Abraham. They're actually descendants of Abraham through Keturah. Uh, and so what we end up realizing is all of this connects back with the exception of the Amorites, who are descendants of Ham. All of these people that Israel are now battling with, and by the way, continue to battle with throughout the book of Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel and so on and so forth, they don't just kind of vanish off the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, the Moabites, who God says will never be able to come into the people of God, will never be able to be a part of the people of God, we end up seeing becoming the great 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 uh, the great great grandmother of Melech David, King David, and ultimately in the lineage of Yeshua Hamashiach, our Messiah, the eternal King of Israel. And so what we see is this is much like Israel and Esau, or Ishmael and Esau, uh, and the descendants of Ishmael and Esau who uh, we get the Arab people from, and the battle between the Arab people and the Jewish people over the last uh, give or take four thousand years. Uh, it's not just something that popped on the scene in 1947 or 48. This has been a 4,000-year battle. These are family conflicts. And where the family conflict ultimately results from, with the exception of the Amori, the Amorites, who are from Ham, not from uh, the descendants of Abraham, with exception of the Amori, everything we read about in this passage, in this Parsha, all of these conflicts we're dealing with all trace back to the mistakes of one individual, Abraham. All of, the, this, all of these problems trace back to this one individual making mistakes, that individual being Abraham. Abraham uh, takes Lot with him when God calls him out of the Ur of Chaldees. He takes Lot with him when God said, pick up you and your house and leave. Don't take anybody from your family. Don't have anything. Just pick up and leave your family and go to a place that you've never known, uh, and I'll tell you where to stop. So he takes his nephew Lot with him, whose dad's dead, and he's a, uh, now a... Uh, 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 without a, a father or mother, and he's taken off to, do his, to, to uh, the land of Canaan with Abraham. So Abraham takes him with them. They end up having conflicts and problems, and so Abraham sends him away, and he picks what looks like the better land to go to, and he ends up landing in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, and everything that happens there, and that all blows up in his face, literally. Um, and he runs and goes and hides, and so we see that there's this conflict there. So Abraham messes up and takes his nephew Lot with him, which sounds like a gracious thing to do, but in reality was contrary to what the word of the Lord was for his life. Uh, then we have the uh, Moabites and the uh, Midianites who are descendants of Abraham, or I'm sorry, the Midianites and Bilam, uh, or Midianites who are descendants of Abraham through, through Keturah, through his wife that he took after uh, Sarah died. And with these children, the Midianites uh, and those of the east, as it says, he actually sent them away after when he was getting ready to die and he was giving everything he owned and everything he had and the blessings and everything to Isaac. Uh, Abraham was getting ready to die, and he cast away all of his children from his concubines. In Genesis, it tells us that he sent all of his, what, his children from his concubines away out to the east, and these people became the Midianites and, and a number of others. Um, and so what we see is now Abraham has 
produced yet again. We have the issue with Ishmael before Isaac and now these children after Isaac. Abraham has produced all these offspring that were outside of the promise and the blessing of God, outside of what God said he wanted him to do. Not that having children were bad, but he treats them wrong and sends them away. So instead of melding with uh, the descendants of of Israel uh, and becoming a part of God's people as he wants for all of his creation, uh, they become conflicting to Israel and become a great problem for us. And then we have Bilam, who is the grandson of Laban, and we have all the situation that goes on there and the relationship of Laban to Abraham and how things were treated in various situations from Abraham's descendants. So everything traces back to the actions of Abraham when we look at this. So when we talk about the uh, sins of the fathers being uh, repeated upon generation after generation after generation, this literally happens throughout the lineage of Israel, throughout the history of Israel, over and over and over again. So here we see Balak is scared to death. Uh, this, this Moabite is scared to death of what God is going to do through Israel and how he's, he, he thinks they're going to wipe him out. And he calls for Balaam, Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel. Now, Balaam responds when the servants of Balak get to him. Balaam responds and says, verse 8, Spend the night here, I will give you an answer, just as Adonai speaks to me. So the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Now, God didn't really need to ask that, right? pretty smart individual. He could figure it out. Uh, you know, he, he does happen to know everything. Um, God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent word to me. See the people coming out of Egypt, cover the surface of the land. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I will be able to fight against them and drive them away. God said to Balaam, do not go with them. Do not curse them for they are blessed. So Balaam got up in the morning and said to the officials of Balak, uh, go back to your country, for Adonai has refused to let me go with you. So they go back, they tell Balak, Balak gets upset, Balak sends even more theoretically important people to him. They come back and uh, try to get him to, to come and curse him. Verse 18, but Balaam answers Balak's servants, even if Balak gave me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot cross beyond the mouth, uh, the mouth of Adonai my God to do anything small or great, but now you may spend the night here too. Then I may find out anything else Adonai may say. Now, anybody remember when Abraham was buying a burial plot for Sarah, right? And he's got this banter back and forth, and, and the guy says, what is a few thousand whatever between you and me, right? He was declaring the price he wanted, which was an exuberant price, but he was declaring it in this very candidly sneaky way trying to to make it sound like he was being gracious what is a little money between us but also declaring exactly the value that the money is between them well here we have the same situation bilam has already been told by adonai you can't go do not go with them right god doesn't change his mind he's not just going to randomly go oh i changed my mind go curse him who cares right doesn't work there although you know, 2,000 years of replacement theology in the body of Messiah would like to make us think that it's possible for God to change his mind and be done with Israel. It's just not possible and it's not a reality. And so here what we see is Bilam goes, hey, you know, even if the king were to give me a house full of silver and gold, it would never work. In other words, the only way I'll do this is if you give me a buttload of money. Fill my house with silver and gold and I'll go do whatever you want. But let me pretend like it matters what God thinks. I'm going to go talk to Adonai and see what he says. Uh, now, he knows the answer Adonai has already gave him, but he goes and talks to him anyway. So verse 20, God came to Bilam by night and said to him, Since the men came to you to summon you, arise and go with them. However, only the word I tell you are you to do. Now, this doesn't mean that God wanted him to go off with them and curse them. It doesn't mean he changed his mind. It means if Bilam's just going to be an annoyance anyways, God might as well use him for some good, right? 
And what ends up happening? One of the blessings when he was commissioned to curse Israel, one of the blessings that he's commissioned to curse Israel with uh, ends up becoming this phenomenal blessing that is now included in our liturgy. And every Shabbat, we open our service with it in many synagogues across the country and across the world. As uh, Jewish people enter the synagogue, coming into the sanctuary, they're proclaiming the words of the Matavu, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your tabernacles, O Israel, as they come through the entrance to the sanctuary. And what we realize is, is that literally what man meant for evil, God uses for good. When it comes to those that he loves and those that are his, God does not forsake us. He does not leave us. He does not uh, forget us. And he protects Israel even in this situation. Clearly, Bilam's heart was in the wrong place. And we can see that in the interaction with the whole donkey uh, and everything that goes down there. The donkey runs off into a field to try and protect him from the angel. He gets mad, beats him, and uh, he gets back on track. And he runs him up against the wall, and then he lays down on the ground. And all three times, instead of trying to figure out what in the world's going on, he starts beating the donkey. And then the Lord opens up the donkey's mouth and the donkey begins to speak and says, what have I ever done to you to deserve this? What are you doing? Am I not your, your donkey that you've ridden on your entire life? Why do I deserve this? Have I ever done something like this to you before? And then he sees the angel, which by the way, no, there's a kid in the room. I'm not going to make that joke. Uh, <laughs> talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you what that joke was. Um, but, but it's really interesting as we look at this that he doesn't register in his head, wait, something's going on here. He's supposed to be this great prophet, right? He's supposed to be this, this priest with these almost supernatural, magical powers. As a matter of fact, tradition says that the, the various people that would hire Bilam, the, 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 uh, the belief about Bilam was that he had this evil sight that he could look at somebody. And if he wanted them to be cursed, they would be cursed and ruined. And so this is why Balak came to him, because he was this, this man with this evil sight, and he could do, uh, anybody he cursed would instantly be ruined and die and so on and so forth and he thought he could use this but yet here's this man that's supposed to have this direct connection with God and a lot of people like to talk about Bilam was really a good guy and a servant of God that just went wrong but if we look at the context of the scriptures he apparently never really had a relationship with God it was all about profit it was all about this was just another tool in his bag he was a guy that served many gods many idols and this was just another god that he could try and rely on to make a profit so in uh, numbers chapter 23 verse 5 this is the first time that uh, bilam attempts to curse israel uh, he tells balak to make sure he gets a whole uh, seven uh, altars set up and bulls for each one and all this which tradition tells us the talmud says that the reason that they set up seven altars was because there were seven altars set up by the patriarchs and their interaction with god i mentioned this some during q a when we were talking earlier there were seven altars set up by the patriarchs and their interaction with god the four that were made by abraham one that was made by isaac on mount moriah uh before he was uh tied down to it and then there was also two made by jacob in his journeys to and from the promised land and so it appeared to him as though and this is what the talmud says I'm not saying this is definitively fact but it appeared to him that making these seven altars was important so he wanted to try and at least play catch up with the patriarchs of israel and made seven altars thinking this would get god on his side and so he sets up these altars and he goes to divinate uh to to try and use sorcery and divination to curse israel and yet he has yet again another interaction with adonai verse 5 says of chapter 23 adonai put a message into bilam's mouth and said return to Balak and speak this bilam went back to him behold he was standing beside his offering with all the princes of moab and he asked uh uh what what is it that your god says or that god says 
And in verse 7, he says, Come, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. Or I'm sorry, from Aram, Balak brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse one who God has not cursed? How can I denounce one whom Adonai has not denounced? From the rocky peaks, I see him. From the heights, I behold him. Look, he lives as a nation apart or a nation set apart. He does not consider himself as being like the other nations, which, by the way, is exactly what the Lord called of us. Right? He said we are to be set apart righteous and holy so that others want what we have, not us wanting what they have. Who can count Jacob's dust? Who can number a fourth of Israel? Let my soul die to the death of the upright and let my eyes, uh, let my end be like his. So Balak gets upset and gets mad. He goes, oh, you're blessing them. I hired you to curse them. What are you doing? Here, I have an idea. Let's take you to a different vantage point. Maybe from there you'll hate them enough to curse them. And uh, so he takes them this different vantage point. They set up the altars all over again. Verse 16, Adonai met Balaam there and put a mess into his mouth and said, Return to Balak and speak thus. So he said, went to him, and behold, he and the princes of Moab were standing beside the offering. Balak asked him, What did Adonai say? So he uttered his oracle and said, Rise, Balak, hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man who lies or a son of man who changes his mind. Does he speak and then not do it and promise and not fulfill it? Look, I received a command to bless. He is blessed. I cannot change it. No misfortune is to be seen in Jacob and no misery in Israel. Adonai, their God, is with them. The king's shout is among them. The king's shout being the voice of Mashiach, the voice of the eternal king. This isn't the voice of David. This isn't the voice of Solomon. This isn't the voice of any other king of Israel. This is the voice of the king who above all kings, the king who will bring eternal peace. The king's shout is among them. The voice of the Lord is in their midst. Verse 22, God is bringing them from Egypt with the strong horns of the wild ox. There is no sorcery effective against Jacob nor any divination against Israel. Now it will be said of Jacob and Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness, like a lion who does not rest until he eats his prey and drinks his victim's blood. Then Balak, and this is one of the funniest things in this passage, then Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them. Don't even bless them. Don't talk at all about them. All right, clearly we have a miscommunication here. Just shut up because you're not helping me any and I need your help and that's not it. But he goes, I'll tell you what, one more time, let me take you to an even better vantage point. This way you don't see just a portion of Israel. You'll see them all and you'll see how uh, big they are and why you should hate them. And so verse uh, chapter 24, verse 2, this is again the utterance of the Lord coming forth from Bilam. Lifting up his eyes, Bilam saw Israel dwelling, dwelling by tribes. The Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, came over him. He uttered his oracle and said, This is the oracle of, of Bilam, son of Peor. And the oracle of a strong man uh, whose eyes have been opened, the oracle of one hearing God's speech, one seeing Shaddai's vision, and one falling down yet with open eyes. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, and your ta dwelling places, your tabernacles, O Israel. Like valleys they are spread out, like gardens beside a river, like all aloes planted by Adonai, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from his bucket, his seed by abundant water. His king will be greater than Agag. Uh, his kingdom will be exalted. God did, is bringing him out of Egypt like a strong, uh, like the strong horns of a wild ox. He devours nations hostile to him. He will crush their bones. His arrows will pierce them. He crouches like a lion or a lioness. Who would rouse him? He who blesses you will be blessed, and he who curses you will be cursed. 
Then Balak became furious with Bilam and struck his hands together. Balak said to Bilam, I summoned you to curse my enemy, but look, you have blessed them these three times. What's really unique about this is that every time this man who, Bilam, this man was not a man of God. He was not a good man. He wasn't even a half all right guy. He was pretty much a train wreck when it came to a human being trying to put on the voice of the Lord. But even in his ill intentions, even in his desire to gain profit for destroying Israel, the Lord would not let it happen. And the Lord spoke through him. The Lord spoke through this man who was a total disaster as a representation of Hashem, of the, the God of Israel. He was a total disaster. Yet the Lord spoke through him and spoke blessing over him. And towards the end of this parsha, not only does he speak blessing over him, but we end up seeing end-time prophecy and messianic prophecy coming from it. We see him speaking of the coming Mashiach, Yeshua, uh, and, and him being the king of Israel and, and the, the scepter of Judah. And then we see him talking about the end of days and prophecy that will come when Messiah returns. All in this passage here, all in this parsha, we see the word of the Lord coming forth from a man who is nowhere near a vessel of godliness. Yet the Lord uses him for his good and his purposes. In Genesis 12, we see the setup for all of this and what is going on. In Genesis 12, this is Adonai speaking to Avram, to Abraham, uh, as he's known later on. Get going out from your land and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. My heart's desire is to make you into a great nation, to bless you, to make your name great so that you may be a blessing. My desire is to bless those who bless you, but whoever curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's through the, the, the families of Israel, it's through the line of the uh, Lion of Judah that we find Mashiach Yeshua through whom the entire world has literally been blessed, through whom the nations have attached themselves to Israel through faith in Messiah and a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is through Messiah, the very seed of Israel, the very truth and reality of what we're reading here in Genesis chapter 12, that we see all of this come about. And then we see the practicality and the reality of this when we have Bilam and Balak trying to curse Israel and the Lord only lets blessing come forth, but as even the desire to curse Israel was in Balak's heart, Bilam ends up speaking a curse over Balak and the people of Moab and says they will be utterly destroyed. Them and the Midianites will be utterly destroyed by Israel. And so we see cursing come over them and guess what? They don't exist anymore. Israel bottled with, battled with them and fought with them over and over again, but they don't exist anymore. In Isaiah 54, uh, verse 14, we read, In righteousness you will be established, you will be far from oppression, for you will not fear and from terror, for it will not come near you. Behold, anyone fiercely attacking is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you will fall because of you. Behold, I created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its work, and I created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon formed against you will prosper, and you will condemn everyone every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of Adonai's servants. Their vindication is from Adonai. It is a declaration of Adonai. See, one of the things that's so unique about this Parsha, Parsha Belach, is that what we see is there are those out there, there, and we've talked about it, there's this battle going on in the spiritual that we may not always see, right? There are these issues happening around us. The, the enemy wants nothing more than to separate us and keep us separated from the love of the Father, to keep us separated from the truth of our salvation, to keep us separated from the reality of what God can do and wants to do through us and the lives that he wants to impact and change for his purposes, for his kingdom as he operates through us. And the enemy is going to use any tactic he can to hold us down. And that includes curses. 
that includes oppressions, that includes strongholds and barriers and chains in our lives that are going to try and keep us tied down to the ground so that we cannot ascend to the, what the Lord wants to do through us and what the Lord wants to do in us and his relationship and love for us. And we may have found freedom, we may have found salvation, we may have found the reality of the Lord's work in our lives when we accept Messiah, but far too often as believers, because of the curse of those around us, and we think those curses are true and real, we think those curses are something that we have to carry and deal with and battle on our own, far too often we do not walk in the fullness of what God has in store for us. Because all we see is a sliver of what God can do because we're blinded by everything else going around us. But we see in Bilach, in Parsha Bilach, that the Lord works in mysterious ways. He used a mouth such as Bilam, such as Balaam, to speak forth blessing when his heart's intention and his desire was to curse Israel, was to watch them destroyed. And the enemy does the same thing. He is going to attack over and over and over and over and over again. And by the way, if he's not attacking in your life, if, if you aren't having spiritual battles in your life, you might want to get on your face before the Lord because something's not going right. The enemy's going to attack when you're a threat to him. And if you're not a threat, you're doing something wrong, right? As a believer, our goal, our purpose is to be a threat to the enemy because we want to see the victorious kingdom of Messiah. We don't want to see the enemy be victorious. And so it's, if the enemy's attacking us, if he's hitting hard, it's because we're doing something right. We're walking right with the Lord, or at least we're trying to get there. And it's important that we understand that just because he's attacking, just because there are people in our lives speaking junk over us that are constantly trying to beat us down or talk about how little we are or how much we do not know about the Lord or how little our relationship is or how invaluable we are to him or to anyone else, doesn't make it true. Instead, it's a curse that the Lord wants to turn into blessing. It's a curse that the Lord can use to proclaim the realities of what he wants to do in, in and through our lives. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10, says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you are able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the people that are talking against you. It's not against the people that are speaking evil over you. It's not against the people in your lives that are holding you down and tearing you down, that are holding back your walk with the Lord. It's not even against you and your own flesh and body that you try to hold yourself back with. But instead, our struggle and our battles against the rulers, against the powers, against the worldly forces of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of the wickedness in the heavenly places. Our battle is not a battle against flesh and blood, just like Israel's battle wasn't against Bilam and Balak, but instead against what the enemy was trying to do in keeping Messiah from coming. Because if the enemy could destroy Israel, no Messiah can come forth from Israel. And that little promise that the Lord spoke to him in Genesis, when he said that the, the seed of Abraham or the seed of Adam, which is Mashiach, would crush his head and would end his reign, that promise can't come true. If he can just destroy Israel and get rid of the ones through whom the Messiah will come, then there's no problem and no concern. And guess what? You are a carrier of Messiah. If you're a believer in Yeshua, the light of Messiah is a part of you. And just as much as he tried to destroy and has tried and still tries to destroy Israel, all of these years, which by the way, no matter what anybody says, Israel is still 
extremely valuable, important in the reality of God's prophecy. Because Yeshua said he won't come back till all Israel proclaims blessed as he comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Paul says that all Israel will be saved. If you're a believer, you carry the light of Messiah and the enemy is going to work to destroy you as much as he works to destroy Israel. And he's going to bring people against you as much as he has brought people against Israel. So by the way, think about that. 4,000 years of Israel plus and all of the stuff they've gone through, the pogroms in Eastern Europe and the Holocaust and the Spanish Inquisition and being kicked out of England twice and uh, the, 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 the Roman authorities in the first, second, third centuries, uh, the, uh, the, the Arab uprising and all of these things that have occurred generation after generation after generation after generation. The enemy has tried to destroy the work of the Lord in Israel. And you've got the same promises to be excited for. Because the Lord's at work in you. And if he's not, he wants to be. And if the Lord's at work in you, that means the enemy is going to try to destroy that work in you. But it's important that we remember that just like Bilam couldn't speak curse over Israel because the Lord wouldn't let it, there's no curse spoken over you. There's no condemnation spoken over you. When you're bought by the blood of the Lamb, you are cleansed, you are washed clean, and you are righteous and renewed for the Lord's work. Even when we fall short of the glory of God, we just repent and we re-enter the presence of the Lord in fullness. There is nothing the enemy can do to hold us back. The only thing that can hold us back is when we choose to give in to the enemy. When we choose to accept the curses rather than the truth of the blessings and promises the Lord has given us. What we end up seeing at the end of this Parsha is that Balak, or Bilam rather, could not curse Israel. The Lord wouldn't let him. But that doesn't mean that he didn't try to destroy them still. Because what we find out in next week's Parsha is that Bilam is the one that went to Balak and said, look, I couldn't do it through their God. I couldn't curse them that way. But there is one way we can destroy them. I know their weakness. I know their weakness. Their weakness is they're easily tempted. Send a bunch of your prophet, your, uh, your um, temple priest prostitutes in. Send a bunch of the Midianite women in. Uh, and they will quickly fall to the temptation and be led astray in idolatry. You may not be able to destroy them spiritually, but I bet we can give them to physically fall in. We can get them to believe anything we want if we just attack them physically, and then spiritually they fall in the same place. And the Lord wants to, 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 the Lord wants us to understand that there's nothing the enemy can do against us except that which we let happen. There's nothing the enemy can, can rob us of or steal us of that the Lord wants and has in store for us, except that which we allow him. And so when you have a rough day, when things aren't going well, when your family's a pain, when your uh, friends are a pain, when stuff's going wrong at work or at school, or in, you, know, you get into a car accident, we were, I was on my way to, to Tara on tap in March, and I get hit in the rear end by a car, totals my Suburban. I've been dealing with back issues ever since. It's just the enemy trying to hold us back. But we keep pushing through. We keep pushing through. When we have services and 10 people are here instead of 50 or 60 or 70, you know what? It's just the enemy. And we're just going to keep pushing through. When I wake up in the morning, I'm just not feeling that interested in building my spiritual life. It's not the Lord. It's not how the Lord operates. He wants to commune with us. That's the enemy. And the only way the enemy can be victorious is if I let him. If I don't push into the presence of the Lord, if I don't push harder into what the Lord wants to do in my life and push harder into his presence, I want you to understand there is no curse that can be spoken over you that the Lord cannot break. 
There's no chains, no stronghold, no barrier that is holding you back from the truth of the presence of the Lord's salvation and the power and might of His Ruach HaKodesh in your life that the Lord cannot destroy. There's nothing the enemy can put in your path that the Lord cannot clear out the way. The question is, do you want to push into the presence of the Lord no matter what? Are you willing to? Are you willing to push through the physical into the spiritual and see the truth of the battle that the Lord is doing on your behalf? Are you willing to let the light shine forth no matter what? See, this says in Ephesians 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the worldly forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know what? This darkness are all of the things that in Genesis the Lord said we have dominion over. In Acts chapter 2, that he renewed and restored our dominion over in the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, in which we have dominion and authority over the things of this world. All of that mess are things of this world. Temptations of this world. It's not of God. We let that in. And we too can be victorious of it by pressing into the presence of the Lord, especially in moments of temptation. So I like to look at this whole narrative of Balak and Bilam and everything that's going on. And I see that there's this family conflict that's been going on for 4,000 years. And there are those that think they deserve something more than what they have gotten or those that think Israel shouldn't be better than they are. And instead of recognizing their places to gather with Israel, instead they want to destroy Israel. But you know what? It's still a family battle, even in the spiritual, because where did the angel uh, or where did the enemy fall from? The enemy was an angel. He's fallen from heaven because of his choice to sin, because of his choice to decide he could be God or greater than God. And all of his little minions fell with him, not the little yellow guys, although they're funny. All of his minions fell with him because they thought they could be more than they are, but you know what? He wants to bring us down because you and I are way more than he'll ever be because we are created in the image and likeness of God. And he wants to try and constantly tear us down so that we don't believe that and we don't walk in it because if he can't be like God he surely doesn't want us to be those curses have no value over you those strongholds have no value over you the barriers have no value the chains have no value and no control in your life the Lord has given you freedom and if you haven't walked in his salvation if you haven't accepted his salvation today's the day to find that freedom in his salvation if you've been walking in a dark and gloomy world as a believer rather than the light and the joy of Messiah, today's the day to change that. To return back to him in faithfulness and whole, wholeness. Because the Lord doesn't want to use broken people. He wants to use whole people. But that wholeness can only found, be found in him. That wholeness can only be found in him. It's definitely not going to be found at the bottom of a bottle somewhere. It's definitely not, not going to be found in an empty syringe. It's definitely not going to be found in a fist fight with somebody that cursed you or, or spoke against you or made you upset. It's definitely not going to be found in flipping off your boss because he takes you off and storming off, losing your job and leaving your family high and dry. It's definitely not going to be found in going to the tables of the casino and throwing everything away. It's definitely not going to be found in the things of this world. But when we turn to the truth of the Lord's salvation and freedom found in the blood of Messiah then we find freedom. Then we find wholeness. 
then we find a place and a way that we can live in the light of Messiah in this dark world and see others find the same freedom and salvation we found. And if you haven't experienced it or you haven't felt that in a while, today's the day to change that. There's never a better day than now. There's never a better time than now because we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised 15 minutes from now. We're not promised three seconds from now. But we are called to use every waking moment that we have the breath of the living God inside of us to impact the world around us for his kingdom, his glory, and his good. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, I praise you and thank you for being a God who turns the curses of the enemy into blessings for us. Father, I praise you for being a God who loves us and cherishes us and desires relationship with us even when we fail. I praise you for being a God that desires nothing more than to interact with us day in and day out, to lead our very footsteps every step we take, to be the voice coming forth from our mouths, to speak truth and blessing and life into others. Father, I praise you for the word that you have spoken this morning, for the reality that you have given us the opportunity to find freedom in you, Lord to be renewed and restored in the image and likeness of which we were created so that others can find your love, your salvation, and enter your kingdom. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen.